Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Inside College Admissions, a podcast presented by SCORE. I'm Ashley Smith, Director of Marketing, and on this episode, I am excited to welcome back one of our strategic advisors, Peter Van Buskirk. Today's conversation will focus on what you need to know about the current state of college admission. We're going to be discussing and diving into topics such as how colleges are continuing to evolve through COVID, how they're evaluating students, wait lists, the pending enrollment cliff, and more. Welcome back to the podcast, Peter. We're so excited to be chatting with you today. It's been a little while since we last chatted. It has been, and a lot's taken place in in the last uh, few weeks and months as the college admission process continues to be an evolving process. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just talking with some of my colleagues, too, about how, you know, we're still in a COVID world, but some things have definitely started to feel a little different. So I would actually love to to kick us off with that topic and kind of talk state of affairs, as we might say. And what are your observations? I mean, we know that you have a lot of great colleagues and contacts who are in the admission space and curious to hear what you're hearing in terms of how they're moving forward and how things have continued to evolve as we still you know, try to handle this and keep tabs on it day after day. Sure. Well, I think that when when COVID hit two years ago, a lot happened quickly. And, and you've probably heard me say before that change on college campuses is glacial in nature, just doesn't happen fast. Well, that glacier was reduced to a puddle in about in about two weeks. <laughs> Yes, I think that a, lot of, a lot of folks on college campuses talk about the spring break pivot because kids left for spring break in early March and, and came back after an extended break to find that things were very different on their campuses as there was a, a very quick migration to uh, remote instruction or, or at least hybrid, if not remote instruction. But on, on the admission enrollment side, there was a, a lot that had to happen because the way families would normally connect with institutions and vice versa was completely disrupted. You've got campuses basically closed and people want to make decisions about where their kids are going to go to school. And all of a sudden they can't get out to see the product, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so institutions scrambled quickly and then well, I think, to create different avenues of, of access for, for families. And uh, that, that was one of the real marvels, I think, of the COVID experience was that, that we really discovered how much we could do virtually. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the college point of view, there were the, the basics in terms of creating campus visit experiences virtually, possibly interviews virtually, information sessions virtually. Colleges typically like to get out and visit high schools in person, and that wasn't possible for at least a year, in some instances, two years. So the, the virtual visit took over, which, you know, in, in retrospect, I think a lot of people are saying, let's let's not count on that virtual college visit in the high school so much anymore, because we really like the in-person approach. However, many institutions found that the virtual approach gave them access to high schools they might not normally have reached. Uh, so right. there are places that are re- more remote geographically. So I think that what we saw early on, big changes in terms of how institutions had to orient themselves to the recruitment process, the selection process, the communication process. And frankly, we came out of that, that experience with some tools that will be everlasting, uh, that will advance the process. Um, but there were some things that, that were, were kind of tough, I think, too. Uh, I've been hearing from a lot of folks, both on the college and the high school side, that, that while working remotely was kind of fun for a while, it um, became a challenge because we have, I think, this, this human need to connect in person at least once in a while with, with our mm-hmm. colleagues. 
and uh, folks on the, the high school side in particular found that working at home meant that, that many of them parents had to deal with parenting at home, children who were no longer able to be in high school or in, in elementary school even. As one person said, between dealing with, with three pre-10-year-old kids and two dogs, et cetera, and then my normal workload, it, it, was, it was a challenge. So I, I, we had to learn to live with a different kind of work environment as well. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that the virtual work environment probably is going to have a place. Uh, what I'm starting to see now is that that people both in higher ed and in secondary schools, particularly higher ed, are, are talking about having a hybrid work environment that, that will continue. That there, There's greater comfort, I think, within an organization in, in having folks work away from the office, at least periodically or for stretches of time, as long as there's good communication. So there, there are things that have happened there. But the other thing, Ashley, that, that was really problematic for colleges and universities at the outset of, of COVID and really through COVID was all of the predictive metrics that are used to, mm, yeah. to help people like me, admission officers, enrollment managers, know the right number of students to accept in order to get the right number of students to enroll. Those predictive analytics went out the window. So it really, I think, did mean that institutions started to feel like they were flying blind. And, and at least for the first year or so, many of the decisions they made in the admission process revealed that they were flying blind. They tended to over-enroll a little bit, or at least target over-enrollment, uh, because they certainly didn't want to come in short of the class. And um, it took probably the better part of two years to, to gain some new confidence in what those analytics are saying. And I think that as I hear from many admission officers now, there's, there's a renewed confidence that they have a, a better handle on things. But, but we'll talk a little bit more in a, in a few minutes about some of the implications there. But th- those are things that happened over the mm-hmm. last couple of years that, that really changed the process, the, the, the virtual orientation. And then uh, from the college and university side, the, the real challenge to, to figuring out how we're going to reach students, recruit students, and then predict the right number of students to admit. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, being able to predict anything was challenging. We didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow, which is what it felt like. So you can say that about anything, but whew, I just remember how challenging it was in the beginning. I mean, for everybody too, just to try to get a grasp on things. And yeah, there were a lot of decisions that were made, but my hope would be, and this, you know, we've learned a lot at SCORE too, that some of the things that we tried worked really well. And now let's incorporate it into what we do on a daily basis. And as you said, you know, have a hybrid approach for a lot of different things. So it's, it's interesting. And I would add, if I might, that we, we learned how we can communicate more effectively in many ways too. And uh, secondary school counselors are, are excited by the fact that through Zoom or, or similar types of uh, platforms, they're, they're able to do more remote work with families. I mean, it's one thing to have the kids sitting in front of you for a counseling session, but it's another to get the parent. Well, now because of Zoom, you can do things virtually. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the flip side of that is many counselors have found that through COVID and through this virtual environment, they're they're losing the access to the, the kids themselves, the personalities, the, the kind of hallway conversations that are never planned, that keep people in touch with each other, I think are, are a problem. Yeah. That they don't take, take place now are, are problematic. And then the other thing, real quickly, and then I'll get off of it. I think that, that high schools decided that because they couldn't do college nights or college fairs the way they would normally do, they'll do these virtual college fairs. And won't it be great? We can get all these colleges to come. We can get even more colleges to come. 
that's going to die quickly because the colleges did not like mm-hmm. <laughs> the did not like being situated in a, a virtual space for two hours, hoping that some student's going to stop by and ask them a question or two. So some things were tried and worked really well. Some things were tried and I think they're going to disappear. Yeah. And I mean, as you said earlier too, just the power of communication, I don't think is lost on anybody, but at the same time, the, the social aspect is just is so important and it's, it's something probably a topic for a different day, but mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot lost in, in that time frame that I think all counselors, colleges and parents, guardians are hoping that we can, you know, figure out a way to get everything back on track. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I do want to go back though, to one of the things that you were talking about in terms of predictive metrics. Um, you know, I'm going to use the term that you that you've mentioned in a couple of previous conversations, but, you know, strategic enrollment management coming back to the forefront and getting back on track. So can you tell us a little bit more about what, what you mean by that and what you've seen and heard from colleagues and based on your experiences as well? Well, sure. And, and this conversation is kind of like taking us behind the, the screen with the wizard. So mm-hmm. I think that there are certain things that the public perceives about the college admission process based on what they think they hear that are different from what's really going on. And when we talk about the admission process, that's sort of the time-honored notion of you apply, you do the right things, you're accepted and you go there. Uh, Strategic and moment management means that there's somebody behind the scenes pulling a lot of levers trying to make sure that we get the right number of students at the right time with the right revenue. The business model really is in play. And um, that, that business model is predicated in large fact, or large part on two factors, selectivity mm-hmm. and yield. Mm-hmm. Now, yield is the, the, the functional part here with regard to how colleges manage their acceptances. Selectivity is sort of the outcome, but it's a necessary consideration here because over the last 20 or so years, colleges and universities have bought into the notion that selectivity is a proxy for quality. Mm-hmm. So the harder it is to get in, the better we are. And then that's the the continuing message to the public. So how do you become more selective? Well, you manage yield through your admitting process. You want to to find opportunities to bring in more high yielding students at every point along the way. And, And just to put that in some perspective, when students apply for admission, regular admission at a selective institution, by the way, selective means that they have more good candidates than they can take. They have to say no to somebody, uh, whether it's one or one candidate or 10,000 candidates, they have to say no. Well, with, with regard to yield, in the regular admission process, typically an institution, and I'm gonna just generalize here, but there's great variability, but institutions might admit five students to get one. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's expected because students applying to any institution are probably applying to three or four or five or six other ones. They will likely have options so simply admitting that student doesn't guarantee that we're going to get that student. So we need to admit a bunch to get one. That's a low yield proposition. And by the way, even among some of the very selective schools, that yield could be one out of six, one out of seven, one out of eight. Uh, or for some, it could be one out of three. But, but my point is that, that there's less precision there. Yep. So historically, there have been two other opportunities for strategic enrollment managers to, to make this work better for them. Uh, one is early decision. And mm-hmm. as, as you know, with early decision, the student is making a commitment to enroll the yield on offers of admission and early decision, which should be 100%. Mm-hmm. 
and, and particularly through the COVID experience right now, colleges were really nervous about making sure they had the right number of students enrolling and throwing out more offers of admission to low yield candidates was not going to be a very good answer for them, especially since doing so would reduce their selectivity. Mm -hmm. So the answer for many institutions was, let's see if we can get more of those high yield kids, more of those early decision kids. And at many institutions that were already maybe bringing into the class 20 to 30, maybe even 40% of, of the class through early decision, that number went up. Well, for example, here's what happens. Mm -hmm. if, if an institution decides it wants to bring in 50 more early decision candidates this year over last, and they're successful, we've got our plus 50. Now we go into the regular process. The, the trickle-down effect there is that we, we need to account for 50 fewer. Right, less space. At, exactly, at a five-to-one ratio. So we can re reduce the number of students we take in regular admission by 250. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've got more students by admitting fewer, which is counterintuitive, but that works. And that's sure. why colleges have been pushing the early decision process to the point that, that many selective institutions now have in their class, 50 to 60% students coming off of early decision, which wow. is, now just think about the impact that has on regular decision. It reduces dramatically the number of places available for the low yield students. Pre-COVID, what would you say was the, the normal average percentage of students admitted early decision compared to that 50 to 60% now? I think that across the board, it probably would be safe to say 30 to 35% of a, of a given class sure. would come through early decision. I'm framing it a little bit differently than you asked, but yep. from a statistical point of view, it's always been the case that applying early decision gives a student an advantage of some sort, a measurable advantage, but by colleges increasing the cohort of early decision kids in the entering class, they're able to have greater confidence in that enrollment at, at a time when the, the, the predictive analytics are questionable while not exposing themselves to less selectivity. Now, many institutions also strategically, they get involved. They're saying, we've got all these students we're admitting from regular admission at a rate of one out of five to enroll the yield. Why don't we put some of these, why don't we put a lot of these kids on the wait list? and see who really mm -hmm. wants to come. And historically, even before, well before COVID, colleges and universities would use the wait list as a, oh, let's say an insurance policy. Let's Speaking keep these, that, yeah. Yeah, if, it, if we come up short, we can always go to these kids. Well, now, during that history, colleges have been very good at bringing in students from the wait list at a high yield, mm -hmm. close to 75%. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so now, yeah. now, now they're saying, Again, why should we take so many students at a 20% yield rate when we can put them on the wait list? If who really wants to come, we can get them at a 75% rate. Mm -hmm. So now what's happening is that there are many schools beefing up the early decision process on the front end and at the back end saying, well, let's, let's account for maybe five to 10% of our class through the wait list. Sure. And so as a result, what they've been able to do is secure the number they want and maybe it's a somewhat larger number just to, to provide a little more revenue uh, in light of what they had to pay out for the COVID uh, adjustments, but they're bringing in the number they want and becoming more selective in the process. Mm -hmm. And this is not a very transparent part of this process for families. Not at all. And it, it you know, the admission teams obviously need to be strategic, right? Because that's their job. But at the yeah. same time, it's creating 
challenges on the front and back end for these families, just knowing what those numbers look like. And, you know, I, I could see a student and or family, you know, thinking about, okay, now I have to maybe potentially move my timeline up in terms of how I'm thinking about this. And that can create more stress. Yeah, exactly. And what I'm hearing, I'm doing a survey with secondary school counselors and, and college folks right now. And the secondary school folks are saying, what's going on? I mean, what can we say to our high achieving students who, you know, in the past could have, could be encouraged to look at the, the elite selective institutions. And now those institutions are only admitting 5%, 4%, 3% of their applicants. And, and we have kids who have been looking at them very hopefully getting slammed in this admission process. Uh, so how can we talk to our kids about finding quality? Again, in my opinion, it's easy to find quality if we, if we separate that out from selectivity. But mm -hmm. how can we find that opportunity for these kids who quote unquote deserve it? Uh, when colleges are so, the, the selective institutions are so uh, hard to get into now. Yeah, it, it's such a balance. And I think that with these changes and even pre-COVID, things were still, you know, somewhat of a gamble and or mystery to families. And just, you know, there's a lot at play here, as you said, that goes mm -hmm. into it. And now, obviously, a huge wrench was thrown in the typical process. And I think that there is just there's always been skepticism, but I think it's increasing right now, which kind of leads me into the next topic that I wanted to talk to sure. you about within this process. And, you know, it's the whole test optional conversation, because I do think that it's great that more colleges are embracing it, but I do think that students, families, guardians are still met with a little bit of skepticism around what does that actually mean? What is your opinion on what's happening with, with test optional today? Well, just by the numbers, prior to COVID, there were just over a thousand colleges and universities across the country that had become test optional in their admission practice, which means that they were publicly acknowledging they could make good decisions about whom to admit without test results. And these are schools that range from the most selective schools to some of the least selective schools. But these were schools are saying to the students, listen, you know, we want to look at you, not your numbers. And, and that number had been growing steadily over the last couple of decades. With COVID, the deans that, with whom I were speaking told me almost with one voice, they're saying, you know, we realized that because so many test centers were closed or inaccessible to students, it, it really did not make sense for us to insist that students submit a result for a test when they couldn't actually get that result mm -hmm. uh, in a meaningful way. And so uh, it, it created an opportunity, and, and frankly, I see it as an opportunity for them to do something that maybe they've always wanted to do. Because I, I think that there were many institutions that were not test optional that thought, you know, we can we can do this without test. So they said, okay, we're going to make test optional, or we're going to be test blind. And then some of them couched it in terms of we're going to do it for the year, for a couple of years until we get through COVID. The, the problem over the last two years has been that many institutions became test optional at, at the higher realm of selectivity and kids who have always thought, well, you know, I'm always going to see if I can get into, you know, an Ivy League school or an, that type of a school. Now they don't require test results. I have an easier chance. No, <laughs> it just means mm -hmm. you're not going to look at your test results, but you still have to compete in a situation where 5% are admitted. And, mm -hmm. and as a result of, of this test option at many of those most highly selective schools, they saw an incredible boon in applications, up 20 to 30% because wow. of all the kids who thought they'd have a better chance of getting in without a test result. 
uh-uh. My, my own personal sense is that I, I find it awkward that colleges and universities insist that students send in test results because they do the validity studies, the colleges do every year. The validity studies have shown consistently for 40 years that they can make good decisions about whom to admit without the test result. And I think that the, the 80% increase in test optional schools over the last two years is evidence to that fact. And I, I think it would be a shame if, if we were to, to, to see a, a massive return. I, there will probably be some schools that return to requiring tests, but I think that, that the, the movement is so strong right now toward test optional. Uh, and the fact that so many schools have proven they can make decisions without the test. I don't know why we should expect to see many of them going back, but this is going to be a point of a lot of conversation in the coming months. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And it, and it is a great way to segue into talking about how credentials are reviewed in the absence of testing. And I know that we've spoken about it a little bit before, but I think that you know over the past two years, I'm sure that there are certain things that institutions have seen as a result of not needing the testing that can you know, continue to help refine how they are looking at students in the absence of, of testing. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on where do you think that is right now from the institution side? What are they focusing on when they're looking at a particular student? Let's begin with the acknowledgement that when we talk about selective institutions, whether they're saying no to one or saying no to 10,000, they're, they're splitting hairs to some degree. And the more selective the school, the more hair splitting that takes place. So it's, it's hard to, to, to just identify process for one place because mm-hmm. gonna, it, this is all on a scale, if you will. What I'm hearing is a reminder, one, that the most important credential still is the student's record in the classroom, the academic record, courses taken, grades received. The student's not presenting something that's very compelling to an institution with regard to their academic record, game over. There's just not a lot of point in in, in looking beyond that. Beyond that, though, I think what we're starting to see, and, and there are a couple of factors here that kind of become intertwined, but for the last 30 to 40 years, we've seen growing evidence that colleges are mindful of the student's likelihood of enrollment. Yes. And that, that's, that was kind of a problematic thing for a lot of students during COVID because you can't go visit a college, you can't have direct access to college reps. How can we engage? How can we get involved and, and, and demonstrate interest or demonstrate that there's an understanding of the place? Well, in my conversation with students and parents, what I've encouraged them to do is, is use the internet because one of the things that colleges have done is they've made themselves very accessible online. Yep. Again, we talked about the virtual things that take place, but even more, the institutions have been encouraging their faculty and their students and staff to, to, to answer the emails and, and make themselves available for Zoom conversations and that sort of thing. So there really has been a continuing opportunity for students to access institutions, perhaps even more so than they imagined. So what, what the institutions are still doing, we talked about the analytics before, predictive analytics with regard to yield, start before you apply. Yeah. The colleges are tracking kids. They're tracking the contacts you have with them. They put those contacts into algorithms and and the algorithms are predicting constantly the likelihood that a student will enroll if accepted yield. And that begins with the very first time a student expresses an interest. So that doesn't mean there should be a calculation on the part of the student in terms of I need to be contacting my college rep every three days. No, it, 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 <laughs> yeah. you know, if there are meaningful questions or conversations to be had, you have them. Don't, don't shy from that, but realize that at the end of the day, again, we're talking about yield, familiarity counts. If 
if, if, if an institution is splitting hairs between really, really good candidates, some of whom they've gotten to know, some of whom they've not gotten to know, familiarity is going to take the students they've gotten to know. So again, I think it's important to encourage students to, to look at meaningful ways of, of not only researching colleges, but developing relationships with some of the people at those places that make sense, which kind of ties to my other point. Admission officers are more mindful now of the student's sense of purpose. Yeah. In other words, are you applying to college simply to get out of the house? Are you applying to college because your parents make are making you go? Are you applying to college because you don't know what else to do? Or are you applying to college because you realize there's something to, out there that you can do to help yourself? You know, and it, when I say sense of purpose, I'm not talking about you have the rest of your life figured out, you know, with a career or a major, but that you understand why education is important to your development as a person. So what we need to do is encourage students to be reflective about why this college process is meaningful to them and then begin to project through their application process how that particular institution meets their purpose. Synergy is the key word here. Yes. And, and a lot of admission officers, especially at selective institutions, are looking at the nuanced elements of synergy when a student applies for admission. If it appears that the, the, the straight A student with the high scores and all kinds of extracurricular activities is applying simply to see if she can get in, that's not going to work well. No synergy. Okay. But if the student is, is making some sincere and genuine attempts to develop connections with the institution, doing good research, um, and that can, that can come out in the application. That is when the student helps herself in the process. Nonetheless, when we were talking about the uber selective schools, those are schools, uh, this may not be entirely fair to say, but in my opinion, because of their high level of selectivity are basically able to kind of comb through their candidate pool for the proven geniuses in, in whatever area. I mean, students who have arrived, who are ahead of the curve and, and they're gonna be selecting among those students. The good news, and this is what families need to know, the good news is that there are a ton of really fine institutions that will take that budding genius, not the proven genius, but the one who will become a genius and get and you there. And get I love you there. that. Yeah. Help and them think, see their potential. Help them get to the finish line. Exactly. And, and that's the whole discussion about fit comes into play here too. And I know that, that SCORE does an awful lot of work in that regard to help students find that fit and to follow that fit. Uh, and I, I think that's genius. Yeah. So those are those are key things right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, I mean, we're we're at this time of year too where the juniors are starting to think about certain certain aspects of this process, such as essays. And I'd love to hear your thought in terms of you know, what are maybe just some quick tips for students to think about as we have talked about in the past that, you know, some of these essays have become potentially more important litmus tests in the process. I agree with you. And I think that the essay has always had a role in, in defining the candidate, but I think now even more so for a couple of reasons. One, many institutions will, will be able to look at a student's response to a, an, a, an optional question that says, oh, how, what was your COVID experience like? You know, how did you respond in the face of that adversity? And a lot of students will look at that like a deer in the headlights, uh, uh, like, what am I going to do with that? Well, reflect on, on what the last two years have been like for you in your life. And, and you know, each of you are going to have a, a, a different kind of experience to, to share. But 
I think that when students look at, at the essay, they really need to look at the package. There's going to be the general essay. Mm-hmm. There's going to be perhaps that optional essay about COVID or an opportunity to talk about things that happened over the last two or three years that may have adversely affected your ability to perform the way you wanted to, but aren't explained to other places. You know, Use that optional essay. And then at the selective institutions, there will be maybe two or three or four supplemental essays mm-hmm. that are designed now to help the institution triangulate on the student. So they come at the student from different directions to really understand that, if you will, that sense of purpose. You'll you'll see the question, why do you wanna come here? Tell us what you wanna study and why. Some institutions have some really, I think, very creative questions that don't require a lot of words, but if you could teach a course at our school, what would it be and why? And it's quite often the why that, that is important. They're trying to get inside your head and to understand you know, how you connect with that place, which, goes back to the point I made earlier about how students can use the internet to research institutions. And you can find a lot about a particular academic program, the way an institution supports students in that program, provides research opportunities, internships, et cetera, and, and draw from what you learn there, maybe even have conversations with faculty or students, but draw from that then in, in answering the question, tell us why you want to come here. You, you've got a really good answer. It, the, I'll, I'll tell you right now, the answer is not. You've got a beautiful campus. Your faculty's amazing, your rank number, whatever, they know that. Right. They, they want to see that the student has really been pretty thoughtful about this process. So I, I think that there is a tremendous opportunity for students with the essays to, to really advance their cases in this process. With the, the general essay, the one bit of advice I would say, well, I've got lots of advice I can offer, but uh, <laughs> the, the bit of advice I would offer is don't worry so much about the prompts. When you look at the application, there will be six or seven prompts, and from these prompts, write an essay, etc. My advice to students, ignore the prompts. They're not requirements. They're creative guides, if you will, to, to kind of stimulate thought. And, and I say that with confidence because whatever you choose to write will fit one of them, as long as you choose you know, to, to really deal with a topic that tells your story in an effective way, it will, it will answer one of them. And I say that with confidence because one of the prompts is, you know, write an essay on the topic of your choice. So, you know, just try not to get hung up on the right prompt, look for the right message that you want to convey. And then how can you best convey that message? Yeah. And, and I love, I love hearing that advice because I think that something that can be challenging for students is just where, where do I focus? And if you're focusing on, on the aspects that are going to fit into, as you said, the, the right areas at, at some point, it helps them not get caught up in some of the other things that you could potentially get really hung up on or stuck yeah. on and doesn't allow you to continue to be thoughtful, intentional, and truly think about fit. So I think it's, that's great advice. It, it's interesting. I can tell when there have, has been parental involvement in the development <laughs> of an essay topic, because it, invariably, when you look at the essay and, and you start to critique the essay, and the student will say, well, my, my mom thought I need to say this, or I, I wanted to make sure I addressed XYZ. The essay should not be a resume narrative. The resume is going to be present in another place. This should not be a travelogue. This, this really has to be a thoughtful, critical look inside of you. Let, let the reader see the invisible you. I had a conversation with a, a young person a couple of weeks ago, actually, and, and he was really kind of flummoxed about how to 
get started with the essay. What do I talk about? What do I write about? And, and what I tend to do in that situation is just help them brainstorm. And, and we happened upon a particular topic from some of the notes I had taken. And I started to ask him questions. And he said, well, nobody knows that about me. Hmm. I said, there you go. Bingo. There you go. And it's when you can find that thing, that part of you that is important, but obscure, develop that. Yeah. And we've had some of these conversations in the past. And one of the things that it always sticks in the back of my mind is that, as you said, it shouldn't be a report out. And this, think of it as a, an opportunity to tell even more about who you are. So I think that those little tidbits really, really help. And again, as you said, it, it really shows the thoughtful nature of things and gives students a, a, an even greater opportunity to shine. So appreciate I, that. I'm going to just throw one other piece out there. And that is, I want students to think about this. How will your essay resemble art? Cool. And, and the reason I say that is that when artists look at a blank canvas, they like to throw colors, shapes, and forms on that canvas to create brilliant images. Mm -hmm. they, like to, they like to play, they like to experiment, they, they like to see what can happen. So to the student with an essay, how will you use your words to do the same thing? Yeah. Art, artists like to take chances. They'll, they'll try something and then they don't like it. They'll cover it up, they'll brag to you. Well, it's in there, but you can't see it. So my, my point to the student is, how do you feel about taking risks? Mm -hmm. And you know, if, if you're looking at a selective institution that the admission officers at that institution are, are trying to weigh your capacity for risk-taking. The Ooh. thought being that if you are going to be a successful student on their very competitive academic campus, you need to have the confidence of a risk-taker. So oh, I love that. What will, yeah. what will your art say about you? Wow. Wow. That's a beautiful way to frame it. I love that. Especially for, for those who may not be as comfortable writing because that's just you know not every student loves to do it so or is comfortable doing it so exactly exactly so we we talked a lot about state of the union i'll call it what what's going on what's happening what things have shifted and i want to kind of take that approach but also have a conversation about something that was a top, big topic of conversation pre-pandemic which is this pending enrollment cliff and i'm curious to hear your perspective on how are institutions feeling about that now, in addition to what they know or have seen through the pandemic? And are the fears, thoughts, challenges, have they increased, decreased? Do they have a new perspective on it? I'm just kind of curious to hear what you think. I, I want to preface my remark by, by indicating that, that what is anticipated with regard to an enrollment cliff Mm -hmm. uh, projected decline in the number of college-age students of 8 to 10% over a period of time. This is serious. It's, I mean, when you look at, at market share in any kind of business situation, the potential to lose 8 to 10% is pretty serious. I would remind folks, though, that this isn't the first time this happened. Back in the late 1970s, there were forecasts based on birth rates that indicated that from 1980 to 1995, there would be a 25% decline in the number of college-age students based on birth rates. And in the Northeast, yeah, well, in the Northeast, it would be 35%. So people, that got folks' attention, okay? And, and a lot of the things that we now look at within the context of strategic enrollment management, the marketing, all that sort of thing, it all was born out of that era mm -hmm. uh, as colleges really didn't want to be 
uh, adversely affected. And, and in, in fact, many of them kind of rose above that, that, that tidal wave and, and became even more insanely selective. So uh, as I say that, what we're looking at in the, in the next five to 10 years is a situation that will impact institutions, but differently. Uh, if we can imagine institutions broken out in terms of their selectivity, the schools that are admitting 30% or fewer right now will be absolutely unaffected at all. There will always be a high level of demand for those institutions, brick and mortar on campus experiences. Then there will be institutions that might admit between 30 and 50% of their candidates, maybe 55, 60%. Those are schools that are gonna be okay too. And, and their primary objective is to kind of protect their rear quarter, but they wanna move up into that, that next group. They wanna be, be close to that 30% or fewer. Uh, in terms of, of a percent of students admitted. So that, we'll call that the aspirational group. The, the first group is, is protecting themselves. They, they wanna make sure that they, they always rise above the pack. The second group is an aspirational group. They wanna move up. The third group of schools will be schools that might be admitting as, as many as you know, 55, 60% or fewer such that they're not even selective at all. Those are schools that are really scurrying right now to make sure that, that they can pay the bills. And some of them won't. Some of them are not going to be able to make it. And, and but this is not new. This this is a phenomena that that we've been able to see for years as uh, schools kind of drop off the, the face of the, the educational earth. And and it's a sad thing because many of them, for a good period of time in in their own histories, served the populations of their community. And and those are for the most part those are the schools that are are really imperiled right now. Not, not, not the schools that are recruiting, you know, students from all over the country or all over the world, uh, the schools that have a broader reputation, but schools that might not be well known, if known at all, outside of, um, you know, a three county area. They're the ones that are going to have a lot of trouble because it's, they have to generate revenue, they have to find the students, and if there aren't students, that, that's going to hurt them. And frankly, the students that might be in their, their particular uh, recruitment area are looking at the, the big scene and they're saying, well, I'd rather go to a school that's going to be here rather than one that's uncertain about its future. So uh, I think that, that there are going to be some, some colleges and universities that fail. We'll see some mergers. I, I think that we're also going to see some uh, evidence of, of corporatization of some colleges and universities partnering with business situations. Uh, there'll be some creative things that happen, but I, I don't think we're looking at a situation where you're going to see a, a, a fiery inferno at the bottom of the cliff. Yeah. And as we were talking about in the beginning as well, you know, institutions were forced to have to make changes and make them quickly. And what I would hope as we get closer to this pending enrollment cliff, that it forces institutions again to become increasingly innovative because when there are challenges you have to adapt and change and my hope would be that it's for the ultimate benefit of the students overall and something that I was reminded of when you were speaking before is when we were talking about the prior enrollment cliff I think you mentioned and please tell me if I'm making this up that institutions got more creative and they started recruiting more women so Let's let's hope that we see some, something else along those lines. You know, recruiting more diverse, different people that may not have had the opportunity before. And and voila, this is part of what we think about when when we think about score. Also, if we're trying to right. reach a wider audience, remember that the, the cliff is based on the number of college age students and the 
current percentage of that group going off to college. So, and, and I don't know the exact numbers right now, but you know, if, if X is the number of college age students and 65% of them are going off to college, this cliff thing could be mitigated by getting 68% to go to college. Right, exactly. It's not like the students aren't out there. It's, it's, we, I think we have to make a strong argument to the community that college still has value. Mm -hmm. And that even there are going to be changing and or different needs in the workforce too. So how can colleges better prepare our students mm -hmm. for that? And does that mean that it's, again, a, a different or increasingly larger pool of students? So let's hope for the best in, from that standpoint. Well, and, and again, I think as, as educators writ large, we need to be better at defining what good means. Because when you hear students say, I'm going to go to a good college, good doesn't start and stop at an Ivy League group. It, it, there are literally hundreds of good colleges. By good, I mean institutions that will serve the undergraduate needs extremely well and, and help to advance students beyond the undergraduate experience. Hundreds of viable options. And I think we have to allow ourselves to think that broadly. Absolutely. Always, always fantastic advice. Well, Peter, I just want to say thank you again for joining us today. It's always great having conversations with you and we look forward to having you back sometime soon. Well, that would be great. I'd look forward to it. Thanks a lot.